All right, Mark, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19 today. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. To brief you on the book to this point, Mark, that's Simon Peter's secretary, if you will, has made his purpose for writing this gospel apparent from verse 1, chapter 1, wherein he writes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark believes and writes to the end of making you believe that Jesus is God himself and that he came to absorb the wrath due to us himself in order to reconcile us to himself. Mark's gospel is all about God and his work to bring us into peace with himself, into harmony with himself, into peace. Mark sets out to persuade us of this by walking us through sort of a highlight reel of Jesus's life, if you will. And he shows us through that kind of sports center segment on Jesus's life that he fulfills prophecy. He exercises divine authority, that he forgives sins and that he advances his kingdom. And we saw two weeks ago that the kingdom of God, Jesus kingdom, cannot be contained in old forms of ritual or religion, and that it bursts those old categories like Mentos and Coke, or if you want to use Jesus's analogy, like new wine and old wineskins. It bursts the categories of traditional religion. And last week we learned that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he's the reality to which the shadow of the law points. We learned that the law was the shadow and Jesus is the substance. We learned that Jesus came to end religion and replace it with himself. We also learned that Jesus' kingdom, this new movement, was not well received by the religious establishment. In fact, we read in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, whom they don't like, against him about how to destroy him. Is verse 6 of chapter 3, and their conclusion was, we have to kill this man. Which brings us to our text this week, wherein we will see that Jesus decides it's time to withdraw for a little while. Maybe to let things calm down a little bit between him and the Pharisees, or maybe just to enjoy some solitude. We don't know exactly why, but he's going to withdraw to the sea. And what we'll see is that Jesus and his disciples are being followed by a great crowd. And what we're going to learn today is that not everybody that follows Jesus follows Jesus. Let me state it for you a little bit differently. Not everyone that crowds around Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. See, there's a difference between being in the crowd and being called. And so our one big thing this morning to try and illustrate what I think the main purpose of this text is, our one big thing is this. Jesus calls to himself those whom he desires and those that come to Jesus desire him. Jesus calls to himself those whom he desires and those that come to Jesus desire him. And we're going to work through the text by answering three questions and then applying those questions to the crowd. And then to the called. So we're going to contrast the crowd and the called by asking these questions. And they are, why do they come to Jesus? So why did the crowd come to Jesus? Why did the called come to Jesus? How do they treat Jesus? And what do they think about Jesus? Why do they come to Jesus? How do they treat Jesus? And what do they think about 
Jesus. Before we get into the text, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've spoken to us in your word, that you've revealed your character to us, and that we can have relationship with you. We ask that you would open our ears, that we might hear this morning, and you might soften our hearts, that we might be receptive to your perfect word as you make small impressions in our lives and change us by it. And we pray that uh, at the end of the day, as we continue to meditate on your word to us, think about the gospel, that we would be made more and more into your likeness, that we would image you better and better. We thank you that you've showed us exactly who you are. The God of the cosmos that comes and dies to save sinners like us. The God of the cosmos that raises from the dead. That will also raise those that have been united to him in faith. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us this morning. We pray that you would help us to delight in the gospel, to delight in this word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idiomia. I'm probably pronouncing that one wrong, but you'll give me some grace, right? Idiomia and from beyond the Jordan. And from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd had heard all that he was doing, they came to him. People are flocking to Jesus. He's akin to a contemporary pop star or an athlete or just a famous celebrity. His fame is sweeping, not just his community, but lands far, far beyond it. People are coming from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idiomia, from beyond the Jordan, from Decapolis, from Tyre and Sidon. People are coming from up to about 120 miles away. And this is a time without Google Maps or interstates. It's a big deal. It's remarkable. Equally remarkable is the ethnic diversity of the people that are following around Jesus. There are all kinds of people from all over. And while I'm about to argue that most of the crowd that's coming to Jesus doesn't follow him for the right reasons, and they're coming to see just what they can get from him, I think the crowd reveals something to us of the nature of the kingdom of God. Namely, that it is diverse. The kingdom that Jesus is building is made up of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The kingdom of God is not divided along social, racial, ethnic, or economic lines. The only requirement for entering the kingdom of God is a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship that comes by faith. Just as the crowd is multi-ethnic and just as the early church was diverse in its membership, so too will the new heavens and the new earth be filled with a beautiful kaleidoscope of diverse people. The contemporary church, our church, is to be a picture of God's coming kingdom. It's to be a display of God's glory. And when our churches are made up primarily of one tribe, that picture of God's glory gets blurred and distorted. 
When our churches are monolithic, when they're uniracial, they communicate a lie that Christianity does divide along social, racial, ethnic lines. While the truth remains that God's kingdom is diverse and multi-ethnic. Friends, we're not doing well in this area. I mean, simply look around and, and note the lack of color in the room. So let's ask ourselves collectively as a church and individually, how can we meet and minister to those that are different from us? Think to yourself, how can I meet and share the gospel with someone that's not like me? I think we need to intentionally seek out ways to clear up this picture of God's kingdom in our church. I mean, perhaps it means uh, a couple of us get together and, and start a Hispanic-speaking ministry. Maybe it means we reach out and do something like English as a second language during the week. Maybe you're in a situation where you're around uh, minorities and simply you just need to engage them in conversation about Jesus. It's possible you might need to figure out a way to forge new friendships. Maybe it means taking up a hobby and getting together with a local group that shares that interest. I mean, maybe you're interested in exercising, and so you, you do that with other people in the community, and you share Christ through that. Maybe it means you like to hunt and fish, and so you join a hunting or, or fishing lodge. I mean, whatever it is, find something to do, and do it with other people in the community, and share Christ with them. We must reach our entire community, not just people that are like us. Everyone in the community. Everyone needs the good news of Jesus. So the take-home here is, be creative in finding ways to engage with others, especially those that are not like you. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So why does the crowd come to Jesus? Because he was, they heard he was doing something. He was doing miracles. I mean, that's not normal. It's not the era of modern medicine. I mean, imagine being one of these people that you've been sick for a long, long time. You have an ailment. There's no cure for it. And all of a sudden you hear that in a land somewhat far off from you, there's a man who can heal any ailment, any disease. Are you not going to go to that person and seek healing? This is why the majority of the crowd comes. They're not concerned with the person of Jesus or his teaching, but what he can give them. They've heard that he cast out demons, he cleansed leprosy, that he made the lame walk and the sick well. And so they come. The crowd is following Jesus for healing, not for Jesus. In other words, the crowd is following the healing. They're after what they can get from Jesus rather than Jesus himself. They're after his stuff, not him. There are many in that crowd that are not Christ followers, but consumers. Don't be a consumer, friends. Don't come to Jesus to get stuff from him. Don't come to Jesus because you think that you'll gain some temporary earthly treasure or some status. 
Come to Jesus because you want him, because he is your treasure. Don't be a consumer, but be a Christ follower. And we'll see the crowd contrast with those that are called down in verse 13. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And so why did the called come to Jesus? Because Jesus desired them and spoke to them. Jesus calls to himself those whom he desires and those that come to Jesus desire him. Jesus elected or chose those that he would call before the foundation of the world. According to his good pleasure and his perfect will, we're told in Ephesians. He calls those he has set his love on according to his own purpose and his grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before time began. God knows all that will come to trust in him. But until we place our faith in him, we remain under the wrath of God. We remain unsaved. Thus, we must, when we hear the voice of Christ through the preaching of the gospel, respond with faith. And the response of faith comes as a result of the grace of God. We're all dead in our sins until God makes our hearts to beat, and our lungs to fill with breath. We could and can do nothing to save ourselves. We merely wait for the word of God to call us out of death and into life. We cannot read Paul's words in Ephesians 2 enough First three verses tell us that we're dead and we can't do anything to save ourselves. And then verse four says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith in this not of your own doing it's the gift of god not a result of works, so that no one can boast the called come because jesus loves them and summons them to himself and immediately upon hearing the voice of christ the called are captivated and controlled by a love for jesus they come out of the metaphorical tomb just as lazarus they come to life love what John says. He puts it very simply in 1 John 4.19. He says, we love because he first loved us. We love God and we're able to make that love visible by loving one another because Jesus loved us first. So the called come because they've been loved by Jesus and because they love Jesus. He desires them and as a result, they desire him. And so I ask you, church, do you desire Jesus? He offers himself to you and has offered himself for you. His life for your life, his death for your death. He has invited you to unite yourself to him by faith. Have you you done that? Have you trusted Jesus? If not, I would plead with you this morning. To listen to his voice. To hear his calling. And to respond with 
faith. Moving to our next question, how do they treat Jesus? We go back up to verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. This scene should actually dispel any caricature you have of Jesus like sitting in a field with a lamb in his lap, kind of petting it and a bunch of kids around and rainbows and butterflies. I mean, Jesus has become famous. And literally the text says he's being fallen upon by the people. There is a mob around him. They're pressing in on him to the point of crushing him. Sidebar. I think we can learn from Jesus here. Don't allow yourself to be dominated by busyness. See, Jesus is going to manage his time wisely. He knows his purpose. He knows he, what God's plan is for his life. And he knows he's got to get out of here. He's going to get crushed. And so in order to avoid being crushed, he sets up a, a getaway car, a getaway boat, if you will, and takes time to get to the mountain in verse 13. I think just practically, on a very practical level, we should do likewise and take control of our schedules and of our calendars because if we don't, somebody else will. Now, that's the end of the sidebar there. So how does the crowd treat Jesus? They press in on him without concern for him. They want to be healed. And so they they treat Jesus much like uh, consumers treat a retail store on Black Friday. And you've seen the, the news stories of people getting trampled as they just press on one another to get into a store. Moms fighting over a toy for their children. Dads fighting one another over the latest gadget. Perhaps some of you have been among them. You don't have to confess right now. It's between you and the Lord. That's the type of mob that's pressing in on Jesus. The crowd is concerned solely with getting something for themselves. The crowd is set on serving themselves. Don't we act like this sometimes? Aren't we sometimes only concerned for ourselves and approach life and Maybe even church with the attitude of, what can I get? What can I get? What can I get? What can I get for me? Instead of, what can I give? What can I give? What can I give? Do you consider others? Or do you constantly serve yourself? Let's contrast how the crowd treats Jesus with how the called treat Jesus. Back to verse 13. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I do want to point out here, it took me a while to recognize this, that there are more than just the twelve that are called to him, right? You see that? On the mountain he called to them those whom he desired. And then he appoints out of those that he's called to himself, 12. And these 12 apostles are going to represent the larger group that's been called to him. And they're going to be commissioned as representatives to do the work of advancing the kingdom. 
You see, these called will not impose their will upon Jesus or make any demands of him, but will be obedient to him. They don't come to serve themselves, but to serve Jesus. They treat Jesus not as a retail store, but as one that deserves honor. They won't use Jesus, but they'll love Jesus and be used by him. They'll serve Jesus by advancing the kingdom through preaching Jesus's message and proving Jesus's authority as they cast out demons. See, the call, they walk with Jesus daily. The crowd come to Jesus as consumers, searching for the miraculous. Their time with Jesus is short-lived. You could say their time with Jesus was extraordinary. It was outside of the norm. It's a mountaintop experience. Whereas the called come to Jesus no longer searching for the miraculous or the extraordinary because they've found the extraordinary just in being with Jesus. The called stay with Jesus and experience him in the ordinary grind of everyday life. See, Christ followers live life with Jesus. The normal pattern of their lives revolve around, orbit around Jesus. So too, the normal pattern of our lives should revolve around, orbit around Jesus. Our faith should not be so frail as to depend upon Black Friday experiences once a year. We should not live the Christian life dependent upon extraordinary experiences every once in a while at the latest conference. Our faith should not only exist in the storms of life when things are hard or when we need something, but in the calm calm of the ordinary. This is where the majority of our lives are lived, after all. In the ordinary. Friends, seek Him. Seek Jesus in the ordinary. Seek Him every moment of every day and every circumstance. Enjoy the riches of the gospel. Everything you do is an act of worship. We'll say it again and again. I'll say it again and again. Everything you do is worship. It's done to the glory of God or to something else. When you wake up, friends, wake up to the glory of God. Seek him in the ordinary. When you brush your teeth, brush your teeth to the glory of God. Seek him in the ordinary. When you go to work, work for the glory of God. Seek him in the ordinary. When you drive home today, drive home to the glory of God. Seek him in the ordinary. When you eat, eat to the glory of God. When you drink, drink to the glory of God. Seek him in the ordinary. When you sleep, Sleep to the glory of God. Seek Him in the ordinary. Jesus is not just for Sundays. He's for every day. The gospel is such a deep river of blessing. It's a deep well. It's a cistern from which you ought to drink daily, continually. We ought to draw on its blessings and apply it to our lives. Always. 
Uh, years ago, a, a pastor told an unusual story about a southern plantation owner who left a $50,000 inheritance to a former slave who'd served him faithfully all of his life. Now, it's quite a sum of money in those days, maybe uh, equivalent to a million dollars today or half a million, somewhere in that vein. Now, the lawyer for the estate duly notified the former slave of his inheritance and told him that the money had been deposited for him at a local bank. Weeks went by. The former slave never called for any of his inheritance. Finally, one day, the, the banker called him in and sat him down and, and told him, Friends, you have $50,000 available to draw on at any time. The old man replied, sir, do you think I could have 50 cents to buy some cornmeal? See, the former slave had not handled money most of his life. So he had no comprehension of his wealth. And as a result, he was asking for 50 cents when he could easily have had much, much more. We're just like the former slave. We used to be slaves to sin, but Jesus has freed us and given us a great inheritance. Yet, we never draw on the unsearchable riches of Christ that are available to us in the gospel. Instead, we let the wealth of the gospel sit in a bank and only take out 50 cents on Christmas, Easter, and the occasional Sunday. Church, I fear that many of us, many of you, don't eat, drink, sleep, wake, work, drive, sit, read, sing, cook, clean, hunt, fish, relax, live to the glory of God because you don't apply the gospel in the ordinary. I fear you know little of the unsearchable riches of Christ because you know so little of Jesus. Christian, explore and enjoy Jesus. Delight in, draw on the unsearchable riches that are yours in Christ. The way you do this is very easy, very practical. It's walking with Jesus in the ordinary. It means spending time reading his word, time thinking on his word, time in prayer. It's time spent with his people. The crowd treats Jesus like a retail store on Black Friday. The call to treat him as a loving master and friend. The consumers serve themselves while the Christ followers serve Jesus. The crowd searches for the extraordinary experience and their lives stay the same. But the call to find Jesus in the ordinary of everyday life and their lives become miraculous. You want to see the power of God? Walk with Jesus in the ordinary. Jesus calls to himself those whom he desires and those that come to Jesus desire him. So what do these two groups think about Jesus? We're going to go back up to verse 10. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever unclean spirits, they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out to him. You are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. What does the crowd think about Jesus? Quite simply, they don't recognize him. They see him as a healer. Nothing more. Notice who does recognize Jesus. The unclean spirits or demons. And notice what they think of him. You are the son of God. They know who Jesus is. Better than the crowd. And perhaps even the called at this point. Small side note here. In verse 12, we've again come across the recurring theme of messianic secret, also known as the command to silence, wherein Jesus tells whoever acknowledges his divinity to to shut up, to be quiet. We've treated this more fully in the sermon on Mark 1, 21 through 34, Lord of the realms. But I'll I'll speak to it really briefly here. Basically, a demonic declaration of Jesus' deity is not going to help his mission. It's the wrong source of the information, and it's the wrong time for this information. Jesus is going to be fully revealed, not by demonic forces, but on his own terms when he's crucified on the cross at Calvary. Thus, the centurion's confession, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus silences the demons. He will complete his mission on his own terms. Now let's see what the called think of Jesus. Drop down to verse 16. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Like means rock. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Bonerges. That is, sons of thunder or the loud ones. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I do love the way this list reads. It's just like a bunch of friends, like Mark is writing down. Oh, those were the loud ones. There's, you know, Rock, that's Peter. So this is a group that knows each other. It's a group that's entrusted themselves to Jesus. It's willing to submit to his authority. And I think they almost certainly believe everything he said about himself to this point and in his power to forgive sins. However, I don't think that even the twelve know fully who Jesus is at this point. I think they know in part, and that knowing in part is where they've placed their faith. They've placed their faith in Jesus. And even though their faith is small at this point, I believe that it is saving. Even though their faith is not full-orbed, even though their theology is not robust, they're safe in Christ. You see, it's the, um, not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of faith that saves. It's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of that faith that saves. For example, let's say I believe with all of my heart that if I flap my arms really hard and get up on the roof of the church and jump off and just flap and flap and flap, that I will fly. And I have full faith in that. And I get up there and I jump off and flap and flap and flap and believe with all my heart that I can fly. I'm going to fall to the ground. Because the object of my faith lacks power. I'm not going to be able to make myself fly. I don't have the power to. 
Now, contrary, let's say I have a little tiny amount of faith in an airplane. Don't really, not really convinced that they can fly. It's, it's heavy after all. But in my tiny amount of faith, I step up, I get on the airplane, I strap my seatbelt in, take the on-flight little apple juice they give you. A few hours later, I find myself a little airsick and also at my destination. You see, it's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of faith that saves. A little bit of faith in the airplane, but it's an object that's powerful enough to get me where I'm going. See, it doesn't matter if your faith is the size of a mustard seed. It can be saving because Jesus is powerful. It's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of faith that saves. Those that are called to Jesus respond in faith and are saved, even when their faith is small. The called think of Jesus as master, as friend, and eventually as God. As revealed by Peter's famous confession, called to submit themselves to Christ. Notice that the only thing that is really special about these 12 who represent the larger group is that they are called, right? This group is exceedingly normal. Not anything super special about it. You know, fishermen and tax collectors. Uh, it reminds me, recently I saw the Lego movie. I don't know if many of you have seen this. But uh, the plot line revolves around a character who is extremely ordinary. And he, he gets special because he finds this very special piece that, that's going to hold the key to saving the world. And that's the only thing that's out of the ordinary about him. It's the only thing that's unique about him. Like his favorite song is everybody else's favorite song. It says, everything is awesome. You've probably heard kids sing it maybe. But he, that's his favorite song, everybody's favorite place to hang out. That's his favorite place to hang out. He is exceedingly ordinary, except for the fact that he finds this peace. Likewise, these guys are exceptionally ordinary. What's special about them is that they've been called by Christ. Uh, John MacArthur puts it this way about these guys. He says, they're not otherworldly. They're not nearly divine. They're not the cream of the crop among men. They're not the highest and noblest and the best. They're not the most educated, the most highly skilled. They're not the most gifted, hum, humanly speaking. The truth is, they basically are distinguished by one thing, that they are ordinary. In fact, contrary to being the best and the brightest, we find that they were prone to mistakes and misjudgments and misunderstandings and bad attitudes and lapses of faith and bitter failure and argumentativeness. And no more so than their leader, Peter, right? And Jesus remarked that they were slow learners, that they were spiritually dense, that they were blockheads. But Jesus saves those that come to him, even those with tiny amounts of faith. He saves those that make mistakes, those that have bad attitudes, those that are slow learners. Jesus saves blockheads like me. Indeed, our God has, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, chose what is foolishness in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God's power is made perfect in weakness. We, like the disciples, will sin and make mistakes and fail. 
But what an encouragement it is that Jesus, despite our failures, saves us. Jesus saves sinners. All we need to do is turn from ourselves towards him, place our faith in him. How comforting are Jesus' words in John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Are you in his hands? Have you heard his voice? Jesus calls to himself those whom he desires and those that come to Jesus desire him. It's at this point, I'm sure many of you, like me, are asking a particular question and it relates to the end of verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What about Judas? Now there's plenty of discussion to be had on the matter, but I want to offer you quickly some evidence that I believe suggests that Judas was called to be with Jesus, but not in Jesus. You see, in the end, Judas, by his betrayal of our Lord, will prove himself to be part of the crowd rather than the called. Throughout his time with Jesus, he thinks that he has everyone tricked. But Jesus knows that Judas's true treasure is treasure. That in the end, Judas will prove himself to be a lover of money rather than a lover of God. Jesus knows that Judas really follows the way of the unbelieving crowd and of the Pharisees. He knows that Judas will ultimately use him as a means to an end. Jesus knows that Judas will fall upon him like the crowd, not with a desire for healing, but with a desire for financial gain. Jesus knows that Judas will gain his true treasure with a crushing kiss of betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. We can know that Judas never truly believed in Jesus from passages like John 6, 63 through 71, wherein Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no hope at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And again, we see Jesus pray in John seventeen twelve. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and none of them is lost except for the son of perdition, that's Judas, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. <clears throat> so why bring up Judas here? 
because I want you to know that in the end, you will trick no one. Because I want to warn you, don't be like Judas. Judas loved money, not Jesus. This is a warning. If you love something more than Jesus, Satan will use that very thing to lead you into destruction. Judas tried to cover up his true feelings with external religious behavior, but the truth of his heart was revealed to all when he sold Jesus. And Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knows your heart. Don't be like Judas. Everyone thought Judas was saved. Maybe everyone thinks you're saved. But Jesus knows the truth. If you love something more than Jesus, God knows. Don't be like Judas. Don't be like the crowd. Don't be a consumer. Be a giver. Be a servant. Be a Christ follower. Hear the call of Christ and come to him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is his promise this morning, church. Have you heard his voice this morning? You can begin following him right now. And I'd love to talk with you about what that looks like to follow Jesus whether you want to talk about it now during our hymn of response or sometime during the week. Have you heard his voice? Are you in his hand? Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us in the gospel. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to hear your words of radiance, your words of light that give life to us. Father, we pray right now that you would illumine us. That you would call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light once more. As we practice ordinary, daily, habitual repentance. Lord, forgive us of our sins. And let us sing of your mercy and your love and your glory. As your people. As your bride that's united to you by faith. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.